Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, uh, Jill, very much. Um, I've been sharing a few uh, reflections before we've got underway in our series in uh, Mark. The last few weeks, we're talking about our kind of vision as a church to help you be uh, the church where God has put you, where uh, God has placed you, and, uh, and so on. And, and with that in mind, I talked last week about the, the business leaders huddle and how perhaps that name had become uh, kind of miscommunicated. And by business, I mean anything you might do in your workplace. And by leader, I mean someone of influence. So in other words, that's all of us in our workplaces. Uh, it certainly wasn't meant to be exclusive, like you needed to be a particular kind of leader in your working environment. But uh, uh, recognizing that when we talk about serving God where he's placed us, it's, it's often our natural tendency, I think, to talk about our neighborhoods or our networks, and uh, yet our workplaces are uh, equally as important as all those. And for some of us, we recognize that the particular mission that God has called us to, the particular season that we are in at the moment, is in and around our uh, workplace. So if that's uh, uh, floating your boat, itching where you're scratching, then uh, be in touch with us uh, about uh, that. I also started saying something uh, last week um, about Sundays, which I want to say a bit more about um, this morning for a few minutes before we get into Mark chapter 8. Whilst we build communities across our town... What we don't want to do with an equal sense of commitment and affirmation is to lose the importance of celebration either when we gather like this on a Sunday. And I'll say a few things um, as I promised last week. I think it's easy for us to become casual about Sundays and maybe the Spirit of God at this particular moment, in this particular season, is whispering to us about being careful about them. We need to be careful rather than casual about uh, Sundays. And the reason it's on my mind, I think, is that I've, um, I'm aware that, uh, uh, and I listen to quite a lot of conversations about Sundays, about celebration, about what happens in uh, this space, and, uh, 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 and some of those things are, are bothering me a little bit. Uh, and I'm also aware that less people here on a Sunday sometimes, whatever the reason for that, whatever the reason for that good or bad might be, it, it does or it is creating a sense of anxiety amongst us which it's worth us thinking about. So I want to say a few things about uh, Sundays to help perhaps inform our conversation and perhaps to help instruct our collective behavior. And, And of course, just like with everything I say, it might be of no help whatsoever. So I run that risk, and, uh, and uh, you run that risk of listening to uh, me. It comes to you with a heart of love. I'm confident uh, that you love me, and I hope you've got a, a little bit of assurance that I might uh, like you too. <laughs> I, I wasn't asking for that verbal affirmation. Seven years ago, about, we had a church uh, full of people 
but we were not seeing anyone come to faith. That, for me, was deeply troubling. It it became, in the Spirit of God, I think, deeply troubling for all of us. Whatever our collective good was, if we weren't helping other people find faith, then our very raison d'etre was in question. And you will remember, I hope, if you were around then, that as we reflected on it, and that renewed sense that God was calling us to bring mission back onto the agenda in perhaps a way that it hadn't been for a, a season in the life of Burlington, and as we reflected on what it might mean to bring mission back onto the agenda, and we looked afresh at the life of Jesus, we began a journey of discovery and began to see how building communities were the best vehicle to help us with mission and discipleship, and was probably the vehicle that most closely aligned us to Jesus, who when he started his mission and discipleship journey, did so by gathering a community and journeying uh, with them. So we began growing new communities. And to be honest, it's been an absolutely fantastic story. And in all the ups and downs, there are a few things that remind me and hopefully remind you about the fantasticness, is that a word? The fantasticness, I'm going to use it anyway, the fantasticness of the journey. People have come to faith that would have never come to faith, had we not, thank you Nicola, had we not started that journey. In fact, and I'm not sure this is true, and I haven't gone back to make sure it's absolutely true, but it's more or less true, if you take the young people who've grown up in the church and got baptised, probably without our missional community journey, none of the baptisms over the last five or six years would have taken place. Uh, And so there is a sense in which we, we broke some new ground together, and it's been fantastically exciting. The second thing that always encourages me is that We've grown so much more, all of us, in our holistic sense of mission and discipleship. A whole new way of looking at what God's calling us to has become part of our daily life and our culture, and I'm super excited and energized about that. And if the task, third thing, if the task is more about getting people sent than getting people seated is what Jesus was always looking at, wasn't he? How many of these guys can I get sent, rather than how many people can we get seated? Then uh, we are moving the right side of the curve. And more people are involved in a sense of mission and ministry than I've ever known to be true. So that's super exciting. And uh, all of that journey in terms of building communities, and we're just fledgling, we're just learning, we're just growing, we're just trying to understand it all, in early days for us, has been super great, I think. And that's not to minimize or to ignore the struggles and the difficulties that come with it. Every time you break new ground, there's difficulties and struggles, and we're aware of those. Perhaps maybe sometimes too much, and it causes me maybe to lose sight of the goodness of God in the midst of it all. So we need to keep talking about communities. But what I really wanted to talk about was uh, celebration here. As we seek as a church to balance community and celebration, so we're doing celebration, we're in the temple courts and we're house to house. You've read that somewhere in the Bible, haven't you? 
the pattern of the early church, in the temple courts and from house to house, as we think to balance those two, what I'm concerned about, what I want to remind us to get back on the agenda, is that we've always said that celebration is super important. It can feel like, because we're now saying that community is also super important, that somehow we're devaluing celebration. And there's a natural tendency for that to happen in all our lives. There's something super important, and then something else comes along that's equally as important. It feels like the first thing is no longer as important as it once was. Are you with me? But of course it is. Uh, and we need to face that reality, and as a, a kind of settling down, as a, as a growth into maturity, to grasp hold of a balance that says, we're going to cheer on community until our, uh, our mouths are dry and we're hoarse, and we're going to cheer on celebration until our mouths are dry and we're hoarse, because they both matter. What we're taking hold of, then, is the, the two wings of the aeroplane that we believe we need to fly. And we need to grasp hold of them with equal measure and seriousness. So, what does it mean for us to make sure that in this whole move of what God's doing, we don't lose sight of something that we always knew? In fact, that uh, uh, series on the Reformation uh, um, uh, in in the autumn was about how we we can lose sight of things that we once once knew. That was the whole raison d'etre of that that particular journey. Is there there a sense in which we can be in danger of losing sight of something that we already knew because we're focusing on something that we're now discovering is of equal value but perhaps more uh, uh, newer to us? So what does it mean then? to be careful, not casual about celebration. Well, I want to frame the conversation with just a few headings. One, one, remember it matters. It is as important. This kind of gathering will not enable communities to be sustained. Communities need this gathering in order for them to be sustainable. We as individuals need this gathering in order for us to be sustainable because we are are complex people that need relational dynamics at all kinds of different levels. Jesus understood that. Temple courts, house to house. The crowds and the disciples. There's public space like this, which is all about the sense of being a tribe together. And then there's the more personal uh, space, social space, where we gather and we get to know one another in a way that we can't get to know one another on a Sunday. It's not either or, we need both. And, and you will remember, I hope, that when we started this particular journey uh, seven years ago, when we did the whole launch the lifeboats thing, the very first point I made was that the journey that God is taking us on is an and journey. It's an and journey. It's not something instead of, it's something that we're bringing in alongside. We need this celebration for the teaching that it provides. We need this celebration for the sense of unity across the community that it generates. We need this uh, celebration in order to renew ourselves as a community, both physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. The key word is and. So if it matters, then of course there's the encouragement for all of us to be intentional about it. And I think this is where it gets more difficult. Can you remember clip art? We thought that was so cool, didn't we? Clip art. I can remember the first time I printed a colour acetate. Do you know what an acetate is, Joel? Joel's got no idea what an acetate is. Why was I saying Oh, I know why I was saying that. Because there was a, a very kind of funny, we thought, you have to humour us old people, we thought it was a very funny clip art with a vicar 
in the pulpit answering his mobile phone. It was the coming together of all kinds of cultures. We thought we were cool because we had acetates. We thought we were cool because we had mobile phones. And this particular graphic image was of a vicar in his, in his pulpit answering the phone. And it's, uh, it said, please don't call me while I'm at work. Now, there was a day when Sundays were significantly different to the average person. So it would have been almost inconceivable that my phone would go off while we're here in church. Today, every Sunday, I get calls from all sorts of people about all sorts of things. Because to them, it's just another normal day. And I'm a vicar, for goodness sake. But they don't think twice about ringing me or texting me at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Because it, it, it's just... My point is that the landscape of our culture has so changed that Sundays and church is not in anybody's frame of reference. They're not thinking, oh, he'll be at church, so I'll call him later. They're just not even thinking about that because that's just not part of the way culture thinks. And a product of that is that there are so many more Sunday opportunities for us and they are good opportunities. That's part of the trouble. So previously, you didn't have to think much about coming on a Sunday because you'd get up, you'd go, it's Sunday, nothing else is going on. All I can do is stare into space. I might as well go to church. And even if on one Sunday you did get an alternative... It was kind of the exception to the rule, so you didn't need to think about it. Yes, I'll go and do that, because the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Sundays, I'm going to be there anyway. So it didn't really matter. But today, it's way more complicated, and therefore we need to be more intentional. There are family visits and sports occasions and special days out and holidays and concerts and community gatherings. You name it. If you Google things going on in Ipswich from now until the summer, there, there are a, a, a plethora of things that you can do. Every, every Sunday. And loads are written off just because of natural good things that we're involved in and we're connected with. So we need to think about how we can be intentional. And I'll say something a bit more about that at the end. How can we be intentional about Sundays to help us in this sea of all kinds of other things that we're drawn into? And many of them are good things, and many of them are missional opportunities, and many of them are, are kind of things that we need to seize. But on the other hand... We need a balance. So how can we build more intentional? Well, uh, and I'll say a bit more about that at the end. One of the ways that we can be a bit more intentional, though, is to be uh, connected with others about this journey that we're on. And that's kind of why I'm verbalizing it and I'm making a, a bit of a meal about it this morning to get the conversation back on our kind of corporate agenda, to make this conversation part of our culture for a season. Because we need to recognize that we're in it with others and we are family so we are all responsible for helping us together move uh, forward. The problem is our shared um, experience. So, one of the ways we express our connectedness with others is not to let things drift. If people are away, and you will know that people are away because they're not sitting next to you. To be honest, you lot are just a blur at the moment. That's how good my eyesight is. I mean, I'm trusting you're still there. You might have all quietly left, but I think you're still in the room. You've all gone. Yes, exactly. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So, so, but you know, you know, don't you, who's here and who isn't. Not everybody, but in, it, you get what? So, if people are away, let, let's miss them, shall we? Let's call them. Let's reach out to them. Let's express that we care about them. If no one cares that you weren't here, you soon won't care whether you are here either. 
Yeah? If no one cares that you weren't here, very soon you won't care whether you are here either. If we believe that it matters, let's express that in our connectedness. And we can all do that. And if for some reason you still don't know the people that sit around you, and don't tell me you all sit in different places so you don't get to know them because you're all moving around, because you're not. You all sit in the same places. We could almost put your names on the pews and it would work out pretty fine most Sundays. If you still don't know who they are or how to contact them, then at least let us know so that we can do something about it on our collective uh, behalf. But super good for us to take that collective responsibility and maybe we need to, to take it just one step full, further forward about this connectedness. I think we need to remember that it's personal. What, what's happening here is not an event that you come to and then you go away from. What, what's happening here is, is a family gathering. So, for example, if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to go to a concert at the Regent, and, and at the last minute you go, oh, I don't think I'm going to go. No one at the Regent sits down and goes, oh, where were they? No one misses you. No one wonders why you weren't there or loses any sleep about it because it's just an event. There's no personal connection in it whatsoever. Are you with me? But, but this is very different. It's easy for us to think in event terms, but it isn't an event. It has the dynamic of a family gathering. This morning, it will take over... Thir- in fact, I, I didn't think about communion... Uh, With communion, it will take upwards of 40 people, most of them volunteers, to make this morning happen. So that's 40 people that are not just relationally connected, but are actively involved in part of the process of making this morning work for us. So when we don't turn up, it has a relational impact on all of those people. Are you with me? Now, now they're not going, I'm not suggesting for a moment anyone's going miserable about it. Where is everyone? I'm doing all this work. It's not that at all. But there is a sense in which it does carry a relational dynamic. So it's a bit like the family meal and everyone's worked so hard to get it together and you don't show up when you were expected to. And then it's a bit weird that people miss you. And so when we begin to think in those terms... It helps me think about, well, what's my responsibility? What's my connectedness to this gathering? Is it just a nameless event that some people go to, some people don't? No, there's a a connectedness um, about it. But more, on sabbatical, I learned something, just one thing, maybe more, one thing for now, that I thought was both comforting and a little disturbing. I went to some churches, in fact, we went to some churches, that were more alive and engaged than we sometimes are. Now, I know that's subjective, so don't be too hard on me. Just hear the point I'm trying to make. So some environments where it felt like, whatever feelings are, that it was more engaged and therefore more alive. The thing that got me thinking was that the worship, often in those places, was not as good as ours, I didn't think. Maybe I'm blind to the truth, but I didn't think so. What I knew for sure is that the preaching wasn't as good. (laughs) You know, people were having a go. But there appeared to be greater levels of engagement and expectancy when honestly what was happening at the front was no different or not as good as what would be our shared experience uh, here at, at Burlington. And what I began to observe and reflect on was that that engagement and energy comes not from what goes on here, but it comes from what goes on here. 
And I hadn't really thought about it in quite those terms before. I'll qualify this statement in a moment, but you totally control, you as in all of us, including me, we, all of us together, you, totally control the sense of occasion on a Sunday. Now, I agree that if what happened up here was all over the shop, that wouldn't help us. All other things being equal, we together, you together, control the sense of occasion. We'll do our thing, but the dynamic changes according to the dynamic of the gathering that comes. Now, an obvious example of that, very recently for us, was Easter Sunday, when the place was on fire. Now, the place wasn't on fire on Easter Sunday because we had helium balloons at the front, was it? And it wasn't on fire because we gave the kids bubbles. The reason that it was on fire... Well, oh, let me continue this for a minute. It wasn't on fire because the worship was any different, I don't think. We sang the same songs that we normally sing. The preaching certainly wasn't any different. You got the same old stuff from me. And yet there was a different dynamic because two things. One, it was Easter Sunday, so we went, right, we're all in. We're all here. It's Easter Sunday. I'm there. And there was a sense of enthusiasm and expectancy generated by the fact that we go, yeah, hey, we're all in. This is it. We're going to do this together. And that was a reminder to me that normal services become occasions because of the dynamic we choose to create together. And we need each other to help us create that dynamic. So in other words, I need to think about what it means for me to take personal responsibility for that. By me showing up, singing up, smiling up, encouraging up, cheering up, I change the dynamic of what's going on, and so do you. And that got me thinking about the flip side, so that not turning up might be one of the most discouraging things we can do. And I confess, I hadn't really thought of it like that before. I thought to myself, if I don't turn up, the only person who loses out is me. Isn't that an egocentric, kind of individualistic, Western way of looking at the world? So you might think, if you, don't come, if you didn't come today, well, you're the only one that will lose out. What I'm trying to say is if any of us didn't come today, we all lose out. It has an impact on all of us because it's a family gathering and because we need each other because to, make it, to make it happen. The enemy wants us, I think, to believe that it's neutral. If you don't turn up, it's just about you and your walk with God, and you're the only one that will suffer anyway, uh, and you know you should be here, and if you're not here, then your faith might struggle a bit more, and if you're not here for an extended time, you know your faith will struggle, but at least it's only you you're affecting. No, the Bible would say that the whole body image would say, actually, that impacts all of us. And I'm wondering what it means for us to try and recapture uh, something of that uh, afresh. Now, none of this is to make us feel guilty. And I know it sounds like it, doesn't it, at this stage? And you'll know, I hope, if you've been around um, long enough, that the oughts is not really, it's not really my bag to talk about rules and oughts and stuff. Someone nod and say, no, we agree. Um, it's not really my thing. I, I just long, it's a heart response. And so sometimes over the years, some of you will say to me, well, tell them, tell them what they should do. Set out their responsibility. And I'm always really shy about that because I want us to come here because we believe in it with all our hearts, because we want to be here, because we believe the difference that we can make together. We believe that we can get fired up, sent out, and we believe that we can make the world a better place. And that's not because someone says you ought to be here. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want that for me, for you, for, for, for any of us. Guilt is a lousy, lousy motivator. What I want to stress, though, is our presence and our engagement makes a huge contribution. And it's easy to lose sight of that in a crowd. 
And, and that's, I think, what the enemy would sow among us. It doesn't matter. There's loads of people there. It'll all be all right. And actually, your presence matters. It matters to Jesus, but it matters to us together. Just as an aside, please don't say you're with us in spirit. Year seven biology, the way God has made us is that your spirit is firmly fixed inside your body. There is only one occasion when your spirit is not firmly fixed inside your body, and then you are dead. So for your sakes, don't say, I'm going to be here in spirit. You're glad I'm running out of steam. But let's not make missional communities a smokescreen. And when we do new things, and we start new things, they're obviously the kind of blame for everything, of course. Of course, we do that in our homes, we do that in our workplaces. Something new happens and we blame the new thing on something else that's go- going on. You know. So, for example, I hear sometimes, there's not enough people to serve coffee because we're all in missional communities. There's 150 people in this room, 100, 150 people. So there's plenty of people to make coffee. There's not enough people to be on the welcome team because we're all in missional communities. So wh- whatever else is going on, it's not because of missional community. And, and, and therefore, the, the conversation kind of grows, and, and we end up saying, well, well, what's happening here is that all they go on about is communities and, and so on. And that's all that's important to them. Burlington is saying celebration is not that important anymore, so it doesn't matter if I don't go. Both phrases in that one sentence are totally wrong. I don't think we've ever said it's not important. I can accept that as we emphasize new things, it feels like we're saying something is less important. But let's be absolutely clear that celebration this Sunday takes the biggest amount of staff energy, volunteer time, financial resource, and so on. Our effort and energy is super weighted onto Sundays. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't just get up and say what's on the top of my head. Contrary to popular opinion... The worship band don't just get up and play whatever note they can think of, even when it sounds a little like that. Joke, 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 joke. We've got brilliant musicians, haven't we? Yeah. My point is, it takes, there's a lot of investment in it. So we mustn't walk away with the impression we're saying it doesn't matter. Because manifestly, week on week, we're saying that this is important. We are saying that community is equally important. So last Sunday, when the hub gathered 20 people together for breakfast, they learned about prayer and prayed together for an hour and made strategies for praying into the areas where they live. That's an absolute win for us as a whole church because there are Christians and non-Christians engaging in a way they would never otherwise do. We would cheer that on. That's good for all of us. That's the kingdom that God's called us to embrace and to be part of. So to do less celebration in terms of time, to do a bit more community, that's cool. But just to do less celebration is not really cool at all. If we're not intentionally involved in mission and discipleship in some other way, then this is the place as we gather week by week. Let me go back to what I promised, though. To help, I want to say something that we've been saying for about 12 months, but we've been saying it from a community perspective rather than from a celebration uh, perspective. And that's this. We want the first and third Sundays to be all-in Sundays. So instead of thinking about, uh, from a community perspective, those are the Sundays, the second and fourth, when the missional communities might do something different, with our support, with our encouragement, 
because they're not abandoning us. We know where they are, we know what they're doing, and we need to make that clearer perhaps as we gather here week by week. That, that we turn that round just a little bit and we say, hey, we, we need to hold on to what we know is so good about celebration. So if you're in a missional community, whatever else you're going to do, you're going to be in on the first and third. If you have to do something else on a Sunday because it's the rhythm of your family, because it's part of the intentional mission and discipleship that God's called you to, and the other good things that you do need to do from time to time on a Sunday, then you're going to think, I'm going to try and do those on the second and the fourth so that together we can maximize that sense of celebration and those all-in moments uh, together. You with me? And on the second and fourth, we don't feel kind of bad or conflicted. We release those that aren't here to do a good work in the name of Jesus. Knowing that they need us in order for them to do a good work, we need to be a place where they can come back to, and hopefully in the purpose of God, we'll all have places where we're going out to to do a good work and coming back in to be resourced and encouraged through celebration. So we're trying to turn the sense around of what has crept in to our feelings, to our understanding, to our conversation around Sundays alongside uh, celebration. The Jerusalem church died pretty quickly. The Jerusalem church was very celebration-centric. The temple was there, of course. The Ephesian church, or the church at Ephesus, lasted about 300 years and was the powerhouse church that took the gospel through the whole of Asia. The Ephesian church, because it wasn't so temple-centric, because it wasn't in Jerusalem, got a balance of celebration and community in a way that the Jerusalem church had never managed to do. We're chasing down the rhythm that we see in the scriptures of balancing both together. We want to celebrate both, we want to engage with both, we want to be intentional in both, we want to serve in both, we want to see Christ lifted high in both. What's all that got to do with Mark chapter 8? I've got no idea, but we're going to have a look at that now. Turn to the person next to you while I take my jumper off because I'm all, uh, I'd make myself more comfortable, and, um, and just say something that's related to what you've just heard. Go. You're welcome. Let's uh, get our Bibles open at Mark chapter 8, and... Uh, we're going to cover off Mark chapter 8 um, a little bit quicker than we might otherwise have done. Can you um, remember the way we're approaching this series? We're approaching it by thinking about not just one individual story or even one little component of a story, but thinking about why are these stories connected to one another? What, what, why are, so there might be a story, but why is that story before it and that story after it? It's not that the stories aren't true, they're all true, but why when the, the writer gives us these stories, what, what's going on and, and why did one lead to the other in the purpose and in the ministry of Jesus? And last week we talked about what the controlling theme was in Mark chapter 7, the theme of the heart. This week in chapter 8, there is another theme that dominates, and it's the theme of faith. Before I show you what I mean, let's remind ourselves of a verse about faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see from Hebrews. So, faith is the ability to see something that you would not otherwise be able to see without faith. You with me? Now, there are five stories in Mark chapter 8. One of those stories, even though it's true, 
acts as a metaphor, a filter, a way of understanding what's going on in all of the stories in the chapter. Verse 22 to verse 26 tells the story of a blind man. Now, what's weird about this particular story? Jesus prays twice. Jesus didn't get it right the first time. Isn't that reassuring? Is that what happened? Did Jesus somehow not have enough power the first time? Did he get his first prayer wrong? Is his healing power somehow diminished? I doubt all of those things. Jesus heals him in stages to illustrate something that is going on in the life of the Pharisees and in the life of the disciples. He looked up and said, the man, halfway through the healing, I see people, they look like trees walking around. He couldn't see, he could see a bit, and then he could fully see. Was that because Jesus wasn't quite sure what he was doing and didn't get it fully right the first time? I don't think so. So what is this story communicating to us that helps us to make sense of the rest of the chapter. It illuminates all the other stories that are also stories about faith, people's ability to see. Faith is being able to see what you can't already see. The Pharisees couldn't see who Jesus was. They didn't have faith in him. The disciples could see who Jesus was, but their faith seemed inadequate and extremely inadequate on some occasions through these verses, and we'll come back to that. So we're invited to ask the question in Mark chapter 8, how do I get to see more clearly? Or to put it another way, how can your faith grow stronger? Despite the many signs the disciple, the, sorry, the Pharisees still had no faith, and the disciples only had partial faith. Three comments about Mark chapter 8, and then we're done. Number one, true faith grows with an attitude of openness. The Pharisees, it says, verse 11, came and began to question Jesus. Why did they question him? Because they wanted to believe, they wanted to become followers, they wanted to grow in this Jesus movement. No, they came to test him. They came with closed hearts. They didn't want to see. They didn't want to risk their worldview, their status, their comfort, their need to be right, their lifestyle, whatever it is, to be changed or to be challenged or to be disturbed. They're, they're not open. They want a sign not to believe but to test him, to catch him out. They wanted a sign to reinforce their own position, their own prejudice. And Jesus says quite clearly, no sign will be given. Which is a strange thing for Jesus to say, because if you've been reading Mark from the beginning, which of course we expect his readers to have done because it's like a book when it was written, you will know, we will know as readers, that Jesus has already offered signs as proof to who he is. He said to the paralytic man, what's it easier to say? What was it? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. The reason I'm saying that, Jesus says, is so that you will know that I am the Son of Man, that I am who I'm claiming to be. So we've already had this idea of signs. So when Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign, it seems a bit kind of ironic, a bit kind of tongue-in-cheek, a bit kind of, ooh, we need to think about what Jesus is saying here. And it's even more ironic. In fact, it's hugely ironic. What's the miracle that happened at the beginning of Mark chapter 8? Feeding of the 4,000, actually. Because in Mark chapter Six, was it? There had been the feeding of the 
or the 5,000. Now, what's the difference between the two other than the numbers and other than the one had a meal and one didn't? What's the, what's the fundamental difference that every Jewish person would be going, oh, this is awkward? The feeding of the five, I'll tell you, the feeding of the five, I can't stand the suspense. The feeding of the 5,000 was in a Jewish context. The feeding of the 4,000 was in a Gentile context. Now, the Jews, from a Jewish perspective, understood that when the final reign of God would come, the blessing of his provision would also reach the Gentiles. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, apart from the fact that it was a miracle, basically everyone goes, well, of course he'll do that. We're Jews, and of course he's going to look after us and provide for us. What was so amazing about the 4,000 wasn't just that Jesus did the same miracle again, but he did it to those pesky Gentiles. And then every thoughtful Jew goes, "Uh uh-huh, that's a sign. So this massive sign has just happened. It's like a road sign that's so big, massive 40 miles an hour, Joel. And Joel goes, how fast can I go on this? Massive 40 miles an hour sign, teaching him to drive at the moment. Massive sign, and you just can't see it. So the Pharisees have got this massive, gigantic sign. 4,000 Gentiles have just been miraculously fed, and they're just the men. So 20,000 people or more have just been fed, and the Pharisees are going, oh, give us a sign. We're not sure. Give us a sign. No sign will be given if your heart is not open, because any sign that you're given, you simply cannot see. If your heart is closed by your preconceived conditions, your preconceived ideas, your own ways as to, your own understanding as to the way things ought to be. If we want our faith to grow, then there needs to be an openness of our hearts. To ask the question openly, I think God should work over here in that way, but I'm open enough, God, maybe you want to work over here in this way. Where can I be more open about where God might actually be at work? Their hearts were closed, their faith couldn't grow, they just couldn't see it. And sometimes I'm finding myself, I'm looking there, I'm saying, God, why aren't you working? Why aren't you doing it? What's going on? And God's behind me going, hello, look at what I'm doing here but I can't see because I don't want my own ideas and my own preconceived, my own preconceptions to be troubled or, or knocked or my own, insecuri- my own security or my own sense of the way things should be to, be to be challenged. I've got such fixed ideas about what I think God should be doing that I can't see what he's actually doing when it's right under my nose. Now, to be fair, the disciples were open. They were very open. In fact, they were so open that they'd, quote, left everything to follow Jesus. That's pretty impressive. Quick cheer for the disciples. But their openness alone had hardly produced rock-solid faith. Look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They'd forgotten their lunch. And they're in a bit of a panic, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat, which might be Mark winking at Jesus being the bread of life. Get it? One loaf, but not a... All right, I've lost. Jesus goes, be careful, blah, blah, blah. Verse 16, they discuss with one another. It's because we had blah, blah. Verse 17, Jesus is aware of their discussion. What's happened? They've forgotten their lunch, and they're all bickering about what we're going to do. We've got no lunch. We're going to be starving by tea time. We noticed that in work, how not having a lunch can disproportionately affect the whole of someone's day. What am I going to do? I've got no lunch. That's what they're going like. I've got, we've just got no lunch, and we're in this boat, and we're going, and we're miles away from anywhere. And Jesus says... Why are you talking about having no bread? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts 
hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? They are in the shadows of 20,000 or more people being fed miraculously and they're going in the presence of Jesus. (gasps) We've got no lunch. And don't you remember? What's happening here is almost laughable. I'm sure Jesus didn't know whether to laugh or cry. They'd witnessed many people healed, paralytics, lepers, demon-possessed men, 5,000 men getting fed, 4,000 men getting fed, plus all the others, and now they're in a panic because they've lost their lunch. And Jesus says, don't you remember? True faith grows with an ability to remember. An ability to remember. We can struggle today in the same place as yesterday's victory. Think about that with me for a moment. You can struggle today in the same place as yesterday's victory. The beginning of the chapter, they're going, we've got no bread and we've got all these people, what are we going to do? They're now with Jesus going, we've got no bread, what are we going to do? True faith grows with an ability to remember. So I'm asking you this morning, is there something that you need to remember? You're in this situation here and you can't quite work it out and you're not quite sure what God is doing and you're getting a bit stressed just like going to work without your lunch and going, oh, it's all going wrong, we haven't got any lunch. And only yesterday or last week, or last month, or last year, God did something amazing. And if only you could remember what God has almost literally just done, you would have new faith for today. Are you with me? Do you remember? And do you establish patterns of remembrance? You see, there can be objects that help us remember things. In the Old Testament, they put pillars in certain places to remind them of what God has done. So you'd walk around down the road, and there'd be these massive pillars on the road, and people would go, what are those pillars there for? And you'd go, ah, remember, that's what God did when he got us across the Jordan and so on. What are the objects in your house that when you look at it, you go, why did we put that ugly-looking thing in this part of the room? Ah, because it's to remind us that this is what God has done. In the Old Testament, they also wrote down things. They had scrolls of remembrance. You write journals, maybe, some of you. And, and, you, and you put messages of, of what's going on in your world so that you can remember. Go back and read what God was speaking to you about last year, 10 years ago, and you'll be deeply encouraged and impacted. Your faith will grow as you remember. Uh, objects, writings, and of course there are moments, aren't they? Take a retreat, step back. And think about what God has done. Joshua chapter 24, after all the activity, they step back and they say, hey, let's just remind ourselves of all of God's goodness to us. Really important principles to lay down patterns of remembrance. If we want our faith to grow, we have to learn to remember. And it's super easy to forget. We laugh at those disciples, but it's true, isn't it? What's that old chorus? Count your blessings You've just all declared yourself to be at least 80 plus years of age in remembering that. So clearly, uh, Andrew was leading the way. But it will surprise you. If we sit down and talk about God's goodness to us, it surprises us. You've all known that, haven't you? You with me? You think, gosh, God did all that. How easy to forget. So is there something that you need to remember today in order for your faith to grow into tomorrow? And we need an an attitude, a a pattern of of remembrance in our lives. And then finally, lastly, very quickly, as we come to communion, we need an all-in commitment. An all-in commitment. You see, we so identify with Peter, don't we? Yes, yes, you're the Christ, you're the one, we're going to put all our trust in you. Well, Peter, I'm going to need to die. No, 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 we're not doing it then. I'll put all my trust in you, Jesus, as long as 
it goes this way. As long as you do this for me, as long as this happens in my life, as long as that gets straight, I'm all in for you, Jesus, as long as. And he ends this whole chapter, this whole sequence of events, gathering those disciples around. He says, look, look, gather around. Verse 34, gather around. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It was an absolutely shocking picture because almost every day people would walk past them literally carrying their cross, which was to their execution. Jesus says, the way I'm calling you is to the way of death. And many of them were going to be executed, weren't they, for following Jesus in those early days. But even if we're not physically executed, it is about killing our old life laying everything down for him. If you want true faith to grow, then we need somehow with our, our, kind of, our hearts kind of racing and our two hands grabbing hold and saying, okay, I'm all in. Maybe it's easier to ask the question the flip way round. Where am I not all in today? Where am I not willing to go with Jesus yet until he agrees to something? Where am I not willing to go with Jesus if he's going to go there? Where am I still not willing to do if that's what he's asking me? I love you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. I've got faith. But actually, I'm still only seeing trees, men like trees walking upside down. My faith is not complete yet because I'm not yet all in. Project Ruth is an amazing story of reaching Roma kids, some of the poorest kids in Europe. They're utterly shocking where many of the people that are part of the Project Ruth School uh, live. And uh, Karen and I visited just a few months ago. Uh, it's, it's a staggering reality in, um, in Europe that that should be going on. And it's fantastic that our young people uh, are going out there. And if you can get along to Joel's curry night, that would be absolutely superb to help send them uh, there. But there's one chap who came to faith, who went on now, I think, to pastor a church called Bombanel. And he asked to be baptized. And he said, when you baptize me, pastor, please can I leave my right hand out of the water? Why do you want to leave your right hand out of the water? That's the hand I steal with. What are we leaving out of the water? True faith grows when we're all in. Claire. There is a huge amount of stuff in all of that. Got an awful lot to consider as we go into this week. And to be ending with that point is enough almost without all of the rest of it. Where am I not all in? Take up my cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. It's very appropriate now that we come to communion. And we weigh this up. We hear God's voice and we listen. So just before we sing the song that will lead us into communion, let's just have a moment of silence. What is God pinpointing for you right now in all that we've heard, in all that's been said? Father God, right now, speak, cut through, and just just help me see what it is you're putting your finger on right now. Let's just have a moment of silence. And the good news is that whatever God's speaking to you about now, whatever he's asking you to do or to change or to uh, be challenged about, whatever he's affirming, he's saying you're not on your own. And so we're going to come to communion right now, which represents the power of the cross. And because of the power of the cross, we are saved and we are adopted into his family and we have a father who is going to help us with whatever he is speaking to us about. So let's stand together and sing of the power of the cross as we prepare to take communion.